The Video Insiders is the show that makes sense of all that is happening in the world of online video, as seen through the eyes of a second-generation Kodak nerd and a marketing guy who knows what iframes and macro blocks are. And here are your hosts, Mark Donegan and Dror Gill. Hello, everybody, and uh, welcome to another episode of The Video Insiders. Hi, Mark. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing great, Dror. Let's see. What are we on episode? Well, <laughs> you know, we have so many recorded that haven't been released yet. I lost count. So many episodes. We're losing yeah. count. <laughs> I, we're losing count. I know. Let's see. I know that we have published. In fact, do you know what, Dror? Today is the day. Now, for those who are listening, you know, uh, in a couple of weeks when this goes live, but Leonardo Kirlioni, the MPEG chairman, that episode is going to release today. Oh, this is great. really an exciting oh, interview. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, let's let's not spoil it for our for our listeners, but that's episode 8. And um, we have three more that are finished. Just, you know, we just don't want to release them all on the same day. That's not fun, you know. So <laughs> nobody has so much time to listen, you know, doing just listen That's to us all right. day. So if we give them, you know, their uh, regular uh, po- portion, uh, you know, like every week, I think that makes sense. Portion. Portion control, yeah. you know, it's a diet. <laughs> yeah, you need All to pace right. it. You need to pace it. It's it's a pacing technique. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Well, hey, I'm doing great, Jordan, to answer your question. And uh, super excited for the guest that, that we have today. Yeah, I think that today we are talking about the most important component of the video delivery chain. And, and you know why? Yes. Be- be- because, you know, you always say that... Uh, you know, we always thank our listeners because without them, we would be just, you know, a bunch of bits sitting on a server somewhere. And now imagine that you're taking your video and you're encoding it and you're packaging it and you're delivering it, but there's no player on the other side. So nobody is seeing it. So then comes the philosophical question. If you uh, encoded your video and nobody saw it, did you really do it? So <laughs> do it. it's a, it's a tree falling in the forest, yeah, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> if nobody heard it, did the tree really, did fall? it really happen? So <laughs> the player is that final component of the chain that brings that uh, beautifully encoded video to the eyes of, uh, of the viewers, the end consumers of that content. And, uh, today we're going to talk with, uh, one of the vendors of, I think, one of the best players that's uh, available today on the market. Yeah, absolutely. So let's jump right in. So Peter, I think I, you know, I'll, I'll let you introduce yourself and your company and uh, and then let's get started. So welcome. Yeah. Hi. Nice uh, talking to you guys as well. So yeah, I definitely agree that video player is one of the important parts of the video chain. As, an enco- as a player vendor, of course, I can say that it's not the case, but definitely one of the most, well, let's say user-facing parts of, uh, of the chain. If uh, that part of your equation doesn't add up, it's definitely going to be a problem. For us, so for those of uh, the listeners who know who TheoPlayer is or those who don't know the- who TheoPlayer is, TheoPlayer is actually, well, a video player, spoiler alert. What we do is we actually deliver what we call a universal video player. So a video player that actually operates across different platforms, across the different ecosystems. Think desktop browsers, of course, but also your mobile devices, Android, iOS, but also think connected devices, smart TVs, 
set-up boxes, casting devices, things like Apple TVs or Roku's. All those kind of devices basically are in scope for us to to deliver video. Well, not deliver it, but actually deliver the user experience and uh, and playback that video. And if you would look at us from a from a company perspective, thinking like who are are your customers? We actually have a, a pretty broad range of different use cases that we see. Some of the more known names uh, amongst our customers are, of course, companies like CNN, who well present a pretty big part of our uh, of our uh, of our customer base, but also other companies and broadcasters, for example, companies like uh, TV2 in, in Norway and Denmark, but also NBC uh, is, is making use of our player. And not just broadcasters, but also we have a lot of telcos, which are customers. We have a lot of publishers like newspaper, traditional content style, but also some uh, pretty interesting bigger corporates and, and governmental think companies like Nasdaq, but even research like CERN and, well, governmental like European parliaments and commissions and, and those kind of use cases. So customers basically uh, integ integrate your player into their apps? Yes. So what we provide is we provide the video player itself. So there's always still a company building an app or a company integrating our player into the ecosystem for the customer itself. But one thing we do focus on quite heavily is to make this as easy as possible. So for us, that basically means integrating with packaging vendors, integrating with CDN vendors, integrating with encoding vendors, but also integrating with DRMs, advertisements, analytics. So that in the end, basically what you get is you get a configuration and you say, hey, I use analytics vendor X or analytics vendor Y, and you simply put in, for example, like a tracking ID, and then everything is pre-integrated out of the box. That's, that's definitely one of, uh, one of the strengths, uh, the ease of use uh, that we try to focus on quite a lot. Amazing. Sounds like uh, I understand now the universal, you introduced it as a universal player. I, I understand what that word means. It, it is tricky with all the vendors, right? That you have to integrate and coordinate with. Yes. You have the complexity of the ecosystem vendor-wise, but also, of course, different platforms. There's a lot of variables uh, playing around which can impact the capabilities of your device or which can, well, differ across configurations uh, of the different chains within, uh, within the ecosystem. Got it. So, Peter, first of all, before we go any further, I gave you the absolute worst introduction. I didn't even give your last name. I didn't tell our listeners your last name. I didn't tell your listeners, your, uh, our listeners, your title. So, let me introduce you properly. <laughs> so you know you're Peter, gonna make it tricky for yourself right because if you really I probably am because i i'm i guess i'm gonna mispronounce your last name so you are very free to correct me <laughs> <laughs> so 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 peter spielmans is that correct almost what i was actually almost. going to say is that you're gonna mispronounce my first name as well peter jan yes that's that's oh, indeed, there we go uh, that's okay. more like it <laughs> Okay. Okay. Got it. Peter Jan Spielmans, and you are the CTO of Theo Player. Yes, that's uh, hey. that's indeed correct. 
All right. Good, good. Okay. I feel better. I, I, I turned it over to Peter and then you start talking. I went, that was the absolute, you know, I don't know. Did you catch that drawer? It's I, like, I, I think that's but, the worst, but, but, <laughs> worst introduction ever no, but, but on Mark, the video insider. You, you turn it over to Peter and ask him to introduce himself. That's right. That's right. That's right. So it made sense. Anyway. Okay. Go back and do it. That's right. That's okay. Fine. Well, that's so just good. A, a bit of a cut and paste and, and everything will be in order. Uh, uh, cut, cut and paste. Everything will be good. Yeah, it's awesome. Well, so, you know, thank you for that introduction. And uh, yeah, as as we said in, in, in the intro and in the lead up, this really is, you know, the, the, the player side of the ecosystem is such a critical component. And I know a lot of our listeners are focused on, on encoding and writing the bits. Obviously, we, we have to be aware of the player, but we're more focused on how to uh, make the smallest files that look the best possible. You know, that's kind of our job. You know, we were talking, uh, Peter, before we started recording about a, a company that called Scientia Mobile that tracks, basically, they gather analytics from, uh, they have probes inside, I, I think, pretty much all the major mobile networks. And what they do is they gather device profiles. And um, so they're able to know, for example, on, you know, I'm just for sake of discussion on T-Mobile or on AT&T or Verizon or, or Orange, you know, in Europe or, you know, around the world, wherever you are, what kinds of devices are connecting to the network? And one of the things that really struck us, and we continue to even surprise some in the industry who are not aware that just as an example, HEVC devices, upwards of almost 80%, just to throw out a statistic, of iOS devices that are connected to the network are capable of playing back HEVC. And this shocks a lot of people because HEVC is an advanced codec and there still is maybe some belief out there that um, it's not supported widely enough to really adopt it, you know, outside of maybe 4K. And I guess I would love to jump into a discussion and have you tell us what's involved if someone wants to upgrade the codec in their app. What does that look like? Does your particular player, is it sort of unticking a, a box and then saying, okay, we now support HEVC or, you know, what does that look like? Maybe you can um, tell us more about that. On one side, it's indeed ticking a box. Well, probably it's it's getting your stream ready, which involves encoding, which is a little bit more than ticking a box. Because of course you have to do the ABR profiles and, and those kind of things and, and think about it probably a little bit more than just five seconds. But from the player perspective, there are a few questions which are usually important. It's indeed the case that you can reach quite a lot of devices using HEVC already at this point. So from a player perspective, if we get a stream and there's HEVC in there and the device supports it, well, great, then we can automatically switch over, use that codec, and get uh, bandwidth quality efficiency, which of course is a lot greater compared to what you would normally get with things like uh, H.264. The thing where it usually becomes a little bit trickier, because of course we, we get this question quite a lot as well from our customers, like, should we upgrade to like HEVC? Is this interesting for us? Usually the, the thing that you have to keep in mind is you 
probably still want to remain backwards compatible. As you mentioned, somewhere around 80% of devices already support HEVC, but dropping 20% of your user base can be quite significant. So you probably don't want to do that. As a result, what you will usually get is you will get, for example, an HLS or a Dash manifest, which contains both H.264 and HEVC. And as a result, of course, on our side, the player will automatically detect and fall back to whatever codec would be the most optimized one. If you don't support HEVC, well, yes, then we have to fall back to H.264. In case HEVC is supported, well, great, then we can take that into account, see if we can run it quite efficiently, and if we can, then we can use that one instead of H.264 and get all of the great benefits that uh, that HEVC can bring. Is there a difference in HEVC support in iOS or Android? Is it easier for you to support HEVC in uh, one of these uh, platforms? Of course, Apple has been betting on HEVC quite intensively. So usually support there is, is quite good. Android, Android is always a good question. There is quite some good support out there, but to my experience, codec support on Android devices in general, simply because the vendors are, uh, are a lot more fragmented, right. you have to take a lot more uh, variables uh, in mind. And then I'm thinking profile and, and levels and those kind of things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. You know, what what sort of logic is available? You mentioned that the player can make some sort of decision as to, and I'm putting in, in air quotes, the best codec. Is there some sort of logic that's actually in the player that might say, even take into account like the bandwidth that the device is connected to and maybe even something about the device profile? I'm just curious, like how complex is that decision tree? The decision tree can actually become quite complex. How we generally approach this kind of thing is, first of all, we investigate what kind of capabilities are available on the device. And that doesn't just mean, can you do HEVC or can you do H.264 or, or VP9 or whatever kind of codec you want. You have to keep in mind a few other things as well. You have, of course, the bandwidth variable. But you also have things like DRM, the kind of license that you will get if it mm, needs to right. go. Yeah, if it if it needs to go through hardware decode within the secured container, all those kind of things they they will have a, a pretty big influence. The question could even be: Are you playing out through like an HDMI cable, or or are you connected on on like the main screen of the device? All those kind of things can actually play. Another another very big thing that you sometimes have to keep in mind as well is that you can be switching back and forth in between different codecs. For example, when you're switching from, let's say, uh, a mobile device that is not HEVC enabled to, for example, an Apple TV, because you're like airplaying to, to one which is HEVC enabled. So it, it's it's usually... Well, let's say a little bit more complex than uh, than simply looking at what kind of bandwidth is available and uh, what's the best kind of stream there. Well, especially not the highest bitrate uh, of stream that I can download. It's always it's also looking at things like what kind of uh, restrictions are there on the stream DRM wise, or what kind of uh, restrictions are there on the hardware. So can you decode this efficiently? 
battery-wise, or are you going to well kill your uh, kill your device by uh, by trying to re- reuse like a, a software decoder, which will well drain your battery and uh, and uh, well make your phone a furnace? Do you ever use software decoders, or do you always rely on the hardware support in the device? Usually, we rely on the platform support. So some devices do have software decoders in them as well. In those cases, probably there is no hardware uh, decoder available. So in those cases, it can happen uh, that we fall back to one, especially if we're going to look at things like AV1. Uh, it will be a quite a while before there will be hardware decoders available there. So that that's indeed an option that we that we keep open as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, as you said, it indeed has a, a very strong uh, implication on uh, on battery life, especially with an advanced codec like AV1, where uh, decoding is is more complex than than AVC. I was actually in a pretty pretty interesting discussion a while back in that regard. I haven't verified it myself, so I I, I have to say that there's a a pretty big asterisk in there as well. But the person I was discussing it with was uh, was pretty knowledgeable on the subject. So I'm assuming that uh, there is a basis for, uh, for his claims. But the claims that he actually made were that running a codec like AV1 and decoding it in software has less of a battery impact than uh, playing it on, uh, on hardware well, then playing, for example, H.264 on hardware, simply because the network, basically the network, the, the bandwidth that the network will drain when it has to download bigger files, that impact is bigger compared to the additional drain that you would get from a software decode. That was specifically on AV1. As I mentioned, I didn't verify this myself yet, but I did find it an, an interesting approach. Yeah, that, that's that's really... That's really interesting. Uh, however, this comparison is between AV1 and AVC. And we know today, as Mark mentioned, the uh, data from uh, Cientia Mobile says that 80% of iOS devices and 57% of Android devices already support HEVC natively. And uh, we estimate around 2 billion devices already have HEVC support. And many of these devices have this support in hardware. So if you have HEVC support in hardware, you get the benefit of the reduced bandwidth, but still don't need to uh, pay the cost of software uh, decoding. Yeah, absolutely. And don't forget, that's just iOS and Android. A very, very big set of devices is not even being mentioned. And I'm thinking smart TVs, set-up boxes, those kind of devices, given that they're really video-focused, usually have HEVC support as well. And with uh, more and more, well, let's say services trying to move to uh, to those kind of devices, it's it's also quite interesting that that's also a market segment where, uh, where you can immediately take a pretty big benefit of uh, leveraging more advanced codecs. It's a perfect lead-in, Peter. I, I I was actually waiting to ask you. I assume Theo Player has both a mobile SDK and a you know a CE device SDK. Is is that true? Yeah. For like connected TVs and we have okay. we have indeed uh, more than just Android and iOS SDKs and 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 browser SDKs. We also support devices like Android TVs. You have your your 
well, your Sony devices, I think they they run Android mm-hmm. TV at this point, but also more and more set-up boxes are becoming available with Android TV. But similarly, you have a lot of environments like Tizen, WebOS, all of those kind of devices. They also have, uh, well, we also have SDKs for them. And well, they're, they're not that big within the video services at this point, unless if you look at the, the really big ones like Netflix. But we're seeing more and more of our customers, so more and more OTT services and and operators and broadcasters moving towards those devices as well. That's right. So as a as as a player vendor, are there any distinct differences between how you think about or engineer a mobile SDK versus a consumer electronics device SDK? Or are they kind of merging and sort of becoming one in the same? Um, historically, we try to merge everything. From a, an API perspective, we still do. But internally, actually, all of our SDKs are optimized for those individual platforms. Of course. The reason is fairly simple. If you look at devices like Samsung TVs or like, like set-up boxes, they are always made extremely cheap. It's surprising how much uh, how much power you can get in a mobile device, but still on, on a lot of smart TVs. And of course, a lot of people keep their smart TVs longer than they even do their phones. A lot of smart TVs still are fairly limited in processing power. They don't always get the latest software updates. So optimizing for those platforms definitely is a, is a crucial step. In not just in developing players, uh, but in developing an, an end-to-end experience in general. Do, do you see any demand for uh, VP9 from the broadcasters and the service providers you are working with? Because my impression was that uh, VP9 is mostly constrained to the Google um, ecosystem. Yes and no. We get questions on, on more or less all of the, of the codecs which are out there. We do get questions about VP9 as well. I do see that certain types of customers are a little bit more hesitant in in starting to use them. Some people really like their uh, their MPEG codecs. Other people, then again, are a little bit more hesitant to move into into codecs like HEVC because, well, the licensing part is is a little bit, uh, let's say, dirtied up as well, or at least that's that's how a lot of customers perceive it at this point. Yeah, we are aware of that uh, perception, and I think we covered it uh, pretty widely in uh, some of our uh, previous um, episodes. Yeah, but yeah, on the other hand, I mean, for VP9, yeah, it's it's the audience there is not as big as we see for HEVC. We definitely get more questions on HEVC, but that's usually more the the high end broadcasters as well who need like decent DRM support, those kind of things. Usually if it's premium content, we tend to see customers having a tendency for MPEG codecs compared to uh, more of the the open source codec kind of approach. Mm -hmm. And this ties in with specific flavors of DRM technology that is applied to the content? Yes and no. Uh, usually the DRM flavors which are being applied, you will always see like the, the white finds, fair plays, play ready kind of uh, solutions. But VP9 usually is a DRM-free kind of kind of setup where we see that coming back more and more. 
also because it's well let's say less standardized from a vendor perspective to use DRM there so most of the of, let's say bigger customers they they tend to go for technology which has multiple options where they don't get a vendor lock-in because there's one company that did uh, let's say like VP9 with with PlayReady, but the others didn't. That's usually not really an ideal situation to be in from uh, from an end customer uh, or well from a broadcaster slash telco kind of uh, standpoint. Mm-hmm. So if they use the MPEG codex, then they have more choices for uh, DRM technologies and for vendors that implement and integrate these DRM technologies with uh, those codecs. Yeah, and well, it also the hardware support usually is uh, a lot better for uh, for those kind of uh, situations so but that's that's indeed uh, the impression that you get when you look at the uh, at the ecosystem you know one of the questions i have is the the player upgrade cycle and and i'm just curious how often do your customers need to upgrade the player, whether that's to add, you know, maybe some new DRM support that's required or, or, you know, even codex support. Is that, is that something that needs to happen? Or is this kind of like I ship an app for a device and other than if it breaks, I never touch it. I think there's a very big difference between needs to happen, should happen and uh, can happen. Yeah, good good point. Explain each of those. Well, from our perspective, we have player updates coming out quite regularly. And then I'm thinking every month we have like a bigger kind of release. And then every few weeks we have smaller releases going, uh, going in between. So can customers upgrade? Well, yes, of course, they can, they can upgrade quite frequently, a lot more frequent than, uh, than most of them do. Which, of course, brings us to the question, should they actually upgrade? Well, preferably, of course, for us, it's a lot easier if if more customers are on the same version. Of course, it also gives them more capabilities on certain devices. So it's it's definitely an interesting thing to do. But upgrading the just the player, while it can be interesting, because it can indeed bring more support or, or more efficiency, Usually what we see is that our customers try to associate that with an upgrade of whatever application they have developed around uh, the player. So they will try to launch new features like offline downloading uh, and offline playback capabilities, or they will try to go for uh, a bigger bigger type of release where they allow like a a new flow in recording or those uh, those kind of scenarios. And as a result, of course, well, they should upgrade because it, it brings you a lot of efficiency benefits if you do upgrade and, and new capabilities, but it's not always something that's aligned with the roadmaps of our customers. So that basically brings us in into the, the like, do they have to upgrade kind of part? Sure. The answer is they don't have to upgrade. And well, we have quite a few customers who have a release cycle of updating like once a year, which is quite horrible. But what we actually see as most frequent is like once every quarter or once every six months. Those are definitely the most frequent upgrade cycles that we see with customers. But quite often, of course, like development environments where they're continuously developing their latest version of their applications, that's usually just on the edge of our uh, of our releases. So 
it's always a very mixed problem. We see we always recommend customers to upgrade at least once a year. Also, of course, because there are well, because the efficiency upgrades and those kind of things which are are going on, especially after a year, you'll you'll get quite a big of a gap between things like browser support and, and Android and iOS and all like the operating systems which have improved. So it, it's definitely something you should do. Well, let's let's try to go for well, ideally like every six months, every three months kind of uh, kind of cycles. But it's unfortunately not something that uh, that always happens. We feel your pain. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. I know. Drawer, drawer. Um, you know, may, maybe like yourself, Peter. Drawer also leads our product, and uh, and you know, we regularly here we are pushing out these amazing improvements to our codex, better quality, faster, more efficient, and we have customers sometimes three and four versions behind. And it's so frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> That's the problem with the real, a true software product. Uh, mm. Those companies who are offering software mm. as a service, obviously, don't have this issue because they can constantly yeah. the product is and improve the inherently product. Inherently, always, always updated. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, uh, you, the, the one thing that we have going for us, of course, is you have to think about it like this: if you don't upgrade a video player. Every six weeks, you have a new version of Chrome. Every six weeks, you also have a new version of Firefox. You get new versions of things like Microsoft Edge, like uh, Mm. the Safari browser. They're all being upgraded continuously. Mm -hmm. And that's quite heavy. If you're one year behind, that means that you don't have... Well, one year behind in, in player version, that means that you're also one year behind in leveraging new capabilities of those browsers. And of course, it, it's similar with iOS versions of which new ones come out every so often as well. Uh, the same goes with Android. So occasionally, yes, definitely, you, you really want to upgrade simply because the world around you is evolving as well. So having a universal player is actually one big headache, right? Because <laughs> you need to support all of the uh, mobile operating systems and their versions and uh, different uh, type of devices, different hardware that have the same, let's say, uh, Android uh, operating system, but uh, large fragmentation on that front and then all the different browsers. And each browser runs on an operating system that can be Windows, that can be Mac, even Linux, so it really looks like a, a big he- headache to support playback uh, and, and keep up with all these modifications on all the different platforms. Yeah. Uh, a headache for Theo player, yes, but indeed. the whole idea <laughs> is to, yeah, is to abstract that away for the customer, exactly, right? So, exactly. so the advantage is <laughs> it's Theo player that has to manage, it's Peter and his team that has to manage the headache and the customer, you know, in theory, if they... If they update and they stay current, then, you know, it's just a matter of updating their their app. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I, I would I, I really want to come back to uh, it, we I feel like we haven't gotten to the to the real heart of the matter here. And so I want to dig around this. A lot of our and, and it is and it, here's the question. It's how difficult is it to add a new codec to a player? And, you know, the context is we've been talking about it. There's a lot in our audience who are 
planning HEVC outside. Now, you know, look, HEVC is the only codec to use for 4K, for UHD. So anybody who has 4K content, you know, to the television, it's all being encoded in HEVC. You can't even use AVC. It's just, it's not practical. So it's already dominant there. But we're starting to see a lot more people who are who are sort of I don't want to say waking up because not like they're asleep, but you know, sort of like, hey, eighty percent of my devices, or if I just look across my entire ecosystem, at least fifty percent do support HEVC, which means now we can go all the way down to four eighty p, you know, or or even three sixty p, and you know, we can encode the whole ABR stack. So people are thinking about this, they're, they're, they're planning, they're even, you know, in some cases they have roadmaps, but you know, the question still, I think in a lot of our listeners' minds, maybe even at this point, 35 minutes into our, our interview is, okay, I get it. A universal player might be a solution for me, but what does it really look like to add a new codec? I already have all these players out for all these devices and and so Peter, you know, I'd, I'd love if you can kind of, you know, even get a little bit down into the, you know, the foundational aspects of what does that look like? It's got to be more than ticking a box. Yes and no. So the way how we do it in our player, and I'm pretty sure that other players leverage similar systems as well, is as I mentioned, we look at what are the capabilities of a certain device. We also look, of course, at what is available on the server. So when you would look at, let's take an HLS stream to make it rather simple. The question is always, what kind of codecs are available within within HLS, at least the root manifest? So for our player, we will basically try to detect what the best codec is. So probably in in like the normal situation if you have a, a standard single codec kind of approach you will probably have something like let's say a, a 360p kind of h264 a 480 a 720 1080 and indeed you won't probably won't have a 4k in there because bandwidth wise that would be well about an abomination but what we will do from a player perspective is we will evaluate that list and from our standpoint, any packager or any encoder can push inside that manifest an H.265 or some other kind of codec as well. So if you have configured your stream to, to also contain an H.265 profile or multiple H.265 profiles, uh, because that's possible as well, the player will not just have to make the choice, will I play back 480p versus uh, 1080p? The choice that the player will have to make at that point will be, will I play the 480p in uh, H.264 at a certain bitrate, or will I simply take the 1080p in HEVC at probably more or less the same bitrate or a slightly That's higher right. one? So sure. the big question that you will get get at that point from a player's perspective is, how efficient can you actually play it? And how much bandwidth do you really have available? If we look at the most multi-codec solutions, the advice that we usually give our customers is that they have to check more or less how much benefit will they get from using that new codec. Because from a player perspective, we will look at what the device capabilities are. So if their audience, the audience that they have, if their device capabilities 
are let's say like 50% of their of their viewers can can watch in HDEVC then it's it can become a quite simple calculation the the calculation can be on one side how much cost or well how much bandwidth and and of course how much money can you save if you would switch 50% of your users to HEVC and of course, you offset that with the additional cost that you will get in complexity for encoding, packagers that need to be reconfigured, uh, and of course, your CDN, which will be caching both, both uh, HEVC and uh, H.264 uh, segments. But once you've done that, you can make a pretty easy business decision on the choice if you should or should not switch to uh, switch to an alternative codec or start enabling an alternative codec. Of course, keeping in mind as well that if you would add an HEVC codec, you can also make the choice, will I go for bandwidth savings all the way and cost reduction, or will I decide that I will actually enhance the viewer experience for the audience that I already have? So from a player perspective, that actually becomes very important as well. Because if you look at the less intelligent ABR algorithms, uh, like players used to develop them two years ago, then most ABR algorithms were basically looking at how much bandwidth do I have available and what is the highest bitrate that I can play? So from a player perspective, what we actually have been doing over the last years is making those ABR algorithms a lot more advanced to take into account also how good the quality would be compared for uh, for different codecs which are being used. How does a one megabit HEVC stream compare to, let's say, uh, a 1.5 megabit H.264? Because, of course, if you have the 1.5 megabit of bandwidth available, which one should you pick? All those kind of things, all those kind of, well, things are, are currently taken into account inside the player. So the nice thing actually for, for customers of ours is if they decide to also go with, uh, with H.265, our player will automatically start to detect what kind of capabilities are available and will make a, a very conscious decision on uh, will it leverage the new codec or will it not leverage the new codec on, on that specific device. Spoiler alert, of course, in most cases, you will actually go for, uh, for HEVC in, uh, on devices where, uh, where it's available. Yeah. Hey, that, that's that, music to our ears. Yeah, yeah. And that makes sense. But also, the good news is what, what you're actually saying is that if a customer of yours is considering upgrading their video workflow to support HEVC and to start streaming HEVC to their users, actually on the player side, at least in the case of Theo Player, it is seamless. They don't need to change anything. The player already That's right. That's what is I capable heard. Of, That's uh, of supporting HEVC if it is supported in the device. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are, of course, a few asterisks left and right that you need to need to look into. And then I'm thinking about things like, are you delivering HLS or are you delivering MPEG-DASH? Especially for HLS, are you doing this in transport streams or are you doing this in uh, in a CMAF manner? There are a few things that you should probably check before uh, before just turning it on or well investing heavily in, in upgrading your pipeline. Well, by all means, please do invest in upgrading your pipeline. But 
make sure that you don't make some very strange configuration where you have HEVC in like a WebM container because that that, that <laughs> will probably not work. But if you probably stick to uh, yeah. yeah, if you stick to to whatever is common, then yes, it it will probably all just work out of the box, and you will get a significant cost reduction and a better user experience in a well in one big swoop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing. I mean, it, it really is, you know, music to our ears. And I think our, our listeners who are are asking these questions should be really encouraged. Drawer. I mean, what I hear is basically you you create the new renditions, which is exactly what we're telling our customers to do. Obviously, there are the caveats. You're absolutely right, Peter. I mean, there's testing, there's configuration. You know, none of this is quite as simple as as we as we describe, but what I was hoping I didn't hear was that there was something really complex in adding a new codec to the player. And I heard it's, it's really your, your players very sophisticated. You've done all that heavy lifting and the decision trees and, and it's going to make the best decision for the customer, uh, you know, yeah, trading off the maybe and the bandwidth. Exactly. Yeah. The, uh, playback the most, uh, that's right. The, the best stream that will give the user actually the best quality of experience. That's right. That's right. Quality of experience. Now you mentioned, Peter, that that you're. It seems like you're doing some uh, pretty sophisticated stuff in the ABR decisions. Is that happening inside? Does that work regardless of whether I'm using Dash or I'm using HLS? Or is you know is there something sort of proprietary going on there? We what we actually do is we develop our entire playback stack in house, so that that's actually a pretty big difference compared to some other approaches that you see in the market where companies are leveraging, for example, AV player, EXO player, or like a Shaka or, or some some kind of open source player. We actually focus on getting all of that information for uh, for the core streaming pipeline to have it in house. As a result. Yeah, of course. I mean, or or ABR algorithms. It's it's something that we control, that we fine tune, and that we get optimized for every individual platform. It's not something that that you will have, of course, if you have an approach which which some integrators like to take to to always go, for example, for a native video player, because of course Apple doesn't think in the same way as Google thinks. For us, a part of the universal player is actually making sure that that consistency is out there. There are a few platforms where there are exceptions, and then I'm thinking platform like Roku, where well, we're quite limited in uh, in in setting up our own uh, our own ABR algorithms. But for most platforms, yes, definitely, we have the same experiences across the board. Excellent. One more uh, topic I wanted uh, to discuss before we end this episode. You mentioned CMAF, and uh, actually, by by sheer coincidence, yesterday I was searching for some information on uh, low delay streaming and chunked CMAF, and I came across uh, a very informative series of blog posts on the TheoPlayer uh, website, <laughs> which was very nice because I was thinking, hey, I'm going to talk to this guy tomorrow. And these uh, articles really explain in a very detailed manner where and when low delay streaming is um, is needed how it is implemented and uh, and and you also um, detail two uh, specific technologies which are um, 
used for low delay streaming. One of them is chunked CMAF, and the other one is uh, uh, low delay um, HLS. So, um, can you give us a short overview of uh, of these techniques, and um, how do you see the interest industry adopting them? To finally enable OTT to compete with broadcast by by lowering uh, the delay to some um, reasonable uh, amount these are indeed two techniques that you see coming back more and more there's especially a very big interest from the market uh, at this point especially in the in the chunk CMAF, the, the low latency CMAF kind of approaches because it's a lot more standardized and there are also a few others uh, which are for example, WebSocket-based or WebRTC-based, which also have mm-hmm. a, a few merits. But one of the, the biggest new technologies that we see for, for low latencies, or at least one where most demand is going to, is definitely the, the chunk CMAF approach. Mm-hmm. For the people who don't know too much about the use case for it, look at look at low latency as, of course, a simple simple way to explain it is the delay between something happening in front of a camera and something being actually shown on your screen. And if you think about it, it's not really a complex problem in a lot of cases, but it does become quite of a complex problem if you have to scale it across millions of viewers at the same time. Right. Especially when you take into account that a lot of the streams where latency really matters, it's usually latency usually matters only when there's interactivity. But that interactivity doesn't have to be with the person who is being recorded per se. It can also be interactivity across, for example, social media, or because you have a an operator which is going over uh, like a satellite or cable distribution compared to an OTT signal, which for example, in, in measurements done during the World Cup were, for example, 30 seconds apart. Mm-hmm. If you see like a, a goal 30 seconds, well, or if you hear your neighbor cheer 30 seconds before you can actually see a goal on your screen, that's that's when latency becomes, uh, well, quite important. Right. The chunk CMAF approach there is actually a very interesting one. Historically, what people have been doing in HTTP-based streaming is working in a file or segment kind of approach, where they would basically complete an entire segment. And once that segment was completed, it would be uploaded onto an origin, and from there, it would be made available over a CDN. Of course, because that entire segment would need to be available, you are introducing additional delays because, of course, the user can only start downloading it uh, after that entire segment has been recorded, encoded, uh, packaged, encrypted, etc. So with the, with the chunk streaming, which is now being, uh, being introduced, what you will actually get is you don't have to wait for an entire segment to be completed anymore, but you can basically go for very small chunks, which get published on origins and on CDNs. And as a result, you're basically reducing that time that you have to wait before that entire segment becomes available, which allows you to reduce your uh, your latencies from historically like 30, 40 seconds using a traditional HLS setup. 
and well, using a, a more latency-focused HLS setup of, uh, let's say, like 10 seconds kind of ballparks into something which goes like two, three, four, five, eight kind of seconds uh, ranges, depending on uh, on encoder and packaging configs, which of course brings you a lot closer to the latencies of uh, traditional broadcast. So that's that's definitely a, a very very interesting evolution. And to be honest, I I could probably talk about this for uh, for multiple hours uh, in a row, but that will <laughs> that will probably need an entire different uh, an entirely yeah. Different let's session. make that a, a part two. I I think drawer CMAF is something that our audience is very interested in. Yeah, yeah. Do, doing low, low delay with chunked CMAF and, you know, getting down uh, to three, four, five seconds, you know, everybody absolutely. would love to hear how this is done and how it's possible. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's excellent. Well, Peter, this has been an amazing, I'm looking at the clock here. We've been talking for 54 minutes and I I, I feel like we just started the conversation. So uh, <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a very good sign. Thank you very much for joining us. I know that our audience, you know, is really going to appreciate all that you had to share. So thank you. Yeah, my pleasure as well. And yeah, if uh, anyone needs any more information on the low latency part as well, don't hesitate to let me know. I'd be happy to uh, to share some additional insights there as well. Absolutely, and certainly check out your blog. and uh, And and what's the best way for them to reach out to you? I, I know uh, LinkedIn, or is there some other way? To me personally, yes, uh, LinkedIn oh. definitely is a pretty good choice. And otherwise, uh, if you email or if you type something like Peter at theoplayer.com or like first name at theoplayer.com, so actually the Peter Jan part, then you will always uh, be able to reach me as well. And otherwise, the, the operations guys will probably see an email being bounced and they'll let me know. <laughs> <laughs> they'll send it to you. It'll get to you. Yeah. It's it's like us, you know, we're, we're not so big that you can kind of just send an email in. It'll find its way. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're only like 70-ish people at this point. So that's, that's big, great. but it's not too big yet. Yeah, yeah, big, not big. It's exactly like Beamer. I think yeah. we're, we're the same size. Very, very and, close. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, good. Well, let's wrap this up. And thank you to the audience. We really appreciate you. And uh, once again, if you would like to come on the show, if you have some some knowledge, some expertise that you would like to share, uh, we would really enjoy talking to you. So just send us an email at thevideoinsiders at Beamer, that's B-E-A-M-R dot com. And we uh, will find a time to uh, schedule recording and have you on. So until the next show, uh, encode on. Happy compressing, happy, happy compression. You know, Drawer, we keep saying it every time. We have to come up with a catchphrase. We've never done it. So maybe we <laughs> need to have a contest. Hey, if there's any listeners that have a better idea of what we should say at the end of the show, email us. All right. Till next time, everyone have Bye. a great day. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Video Insiders Podcast, a production of Beamer Limited. To begin using Beamer's Codex today, go to beamer.com forward slash free to receive up to 100 hours of no-cost HEVC and H.264 transcoding every month.